One of my favorite authors um, by the name of uh, Jim Collins wrote uh, one of the most famous books on leadership today and in business and organizations. It's called Good to Great. And if you're in business, you are probably familiar with that book. And in that book, Jim Collins, he articulated through a body of research what separates great companies and great organizations from just good ones. But he also couldn't help but wonder, um, after he had written the book, why companies who had become great devolved into a downward spiral of mediocrity and even death. What he would realize is that some companies and organizations, even though they had gotten to the top, tragically would begin the downward spiral and would head down to the bottom to a place of mediocrity and even death. And it plagued him why this would be the case, why things that were so great could become so bad. And in his book, um, in his book, How the Mighty Fall, he says this, great enterprises can become insulated by success. Accumulated momentum can carry an enterprise forward for a while, even if its leaders make poor decisions or lose discipline. Decline kicks in when people become arrogant, and get this, and they lose sight of the true underlying factors that created success in the first place. What can happen is that you and I, we even know this to be true in our lives, in our relationships, in our families, in our own work, businesses, whatever it might be, can, even though we've experienced success in the past, can devolve into a a place of mediocrity or something even dying because we've forgotten what got us there in the first place, the thing that actually contributed to our success. When we think about the movement of Jesus, when we think about this thing called Christianity, when we think about the church, when we think about um, what it means to be a follower of, of Jesus, the movement of Jesus is the most incredible movement in the history of the world. And I don't even think that's debatable. What has happened through the movement of Jesus across every continent of all kinds of people is absolutely astonishing. And it hasn't been without its flaws, of course, like any movement, but it is absolutely astounding what has transpired from the leadership of a Galilean rabbi and a few fishermen. It is just absolutely insane. But it is a fallacy for the church to think that it can continue to progress and move forward while simultaneously departing from that which made the church a movement, a movement initially. So today, let me repeat that one more time. It would be a fallacy, it is a fallacy for the church to think that it can progress and move forward while simultaneously departing from what made the church a movement initially. And so today I'd like to share what made the church remarkable in its inception, uh, which in part was this uh, practice of the boldness of these believers but not just any boldness. It was a boldness that they had with their central truth, the gospel, the gospel message. And this was a boldness with the gospel, recognizing the impossibility of the growth of the church without it. And this boldness must not be forgotten, which is why Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation, even in all of his flaws, but he would say rightly, it is therefore extremely necessary that we should know the gospel well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. It's like my my life verse right there. But but he got something right. 
he got something right, which was the absolute core central of the message of our faith, must not be something that is neglected or forgotten or just assumed, but is something that must be doubled down on if we expect for the church to have the same kind of fiery movement that it had in the first centuries immediately after the time of Jesus. Today we begin a new teaching series called This Is Us. And for the next five weeks, I'm gonna be walking us through what um, I would say are the top five core values of the Bridge Church and unpacking who we are and what it is that makes us uniquely the bridge. Every individual has values. Every family actually has values. Every organization, every group, every group of people has values. They may be stated or unstated. They may be assumed or unassumed. They, they may be known or unknown, but those, they are things that are critical, that are their values because they're important. It's where you put importance behind, and they are ultimately the things that um, uh, uh, lead you to make the decisions that you do with your time and your resources, and we are the same. And so today we're going to begin with value number one, which is this, we are bold. We are bold, and here's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to, you could join me in Acts chapter four. We're gonna look at a impressive story, one of my favorite stories in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter four, and we're gonna walk through the text. I'm gonna make several observations from the text regarding boldness. And then I'm gonna make several applications as well um, regarding boldness for you and me. And then at the end, we're going to have a time for reflection and response. And specifically today for those who are living in fear. Specifically those who are covered in fear and overwhelmed in fear and feel a, a level of bondage to fear. If you're living in fear and you're struggling, possess boldness in an area of your own life, we're gonna have an opportunity for you. We're gonna pray specifically over that and ask that God would ignite in each of us a level of boldness. So here we are, I'm in Acts chapter four. I'd love for you to join me. I'm gonna be in Acts chapter four, beginning in verse one, and we're gonna walk through um, a, a quite a lengthy uh, a portion of scripture, and, and then we'll make some application and observation at the end. So this is what the story says. This is the early story of the first Christians. This is as, as early as it gets. This is, this is fresh right after the time of Jesus, and this is what the church does. Acts chapter four, beginning in verse one, this is um, what the text says. While Peter and John, two of Jesus' disciples, were speaking to the people, and this was their pattern, they're in the city of Jerusalem, they're sharing the message, they were confronted, they're sharing the gospel, but they immediately become confronted by the religious establishment, by the priests, by the captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees. And these leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus there is a resurrection from the dead. This is the religious establishment of the day. Um, and it's interesting to me that not only was the world enemies of the message of the gospel, the religious establishment was as well. And the religious establishment in the first century in the city of Jerusalem had significant power. It had significant social power and it also had significant civil power, which is why it is the religious establishment that actually had Jesus crucified and executed because of the power that they had in tandem with the state and with the civil authorities at that time. And they confront, they confront these, these disciples of this rogue rabbi and they confront them because there is something uh, crazy, honestly, that's happening in Jerusalem, and the religious establishment is not okay with it. There's just a whole sermon right there in its own, but we won't do that. Verse three says this. 
They arrested them. You see the power that they have even civilly. They arrested them since it was already evening. They put them in jail until morning. But many of the people who heard the message believed it. So the number of men who believed now totaled about 5,000. Somebody say 5,000. This thing is growing like crazy. I mean, this thing is, is absolutely growing. If you go to a couple chapters earlier at the end of chapter two, it's, I believe it says there was 3,000. 3,000 people, and now it says that there's 5,000 men. Uh, perhaps this means there was upwards of 20,000 people perhaps in just the span of a few days who are hearing the message of Jesus and are being changed. They're, they're believing it. They're becoming a part of this movement. It is spreading like wildfire. It's absolutely crazy. We see this in, in verse five of chapter four. The next day, so they've been, been in jail all night. The next day, the council of all the rulers and the elders and the teachers of the religious law, they met in Jerusalem. They had a big board meeting. They got everybody together. It says in verse six, Annas, the high priest was there along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other relatives of the high priest. They brought in the two disciples and they demanded, by what power or in whose name have you done this? They're basically saying, what authority do you have to do what you are doing? They're speaking specifically to what just happened, which is a man who was in their community who was lame. He was healed. He's been lamed, I think it's going to tell us, for 40 years. And Peter actually heals the guy. And the, the, the town, the city, is just going nuts over what, what's happening. It's absolutely crazy. There's a message and there's miracles that are following it. It's crazy. They're saying, who in the world, they're saying, did you get the power to do this from? Uh, who are you, who, in whose name are you doing this? It says, says this in verse eight. Then Peter, he's like, I'm glad you asked. Filled with the Holy Spirit, he is completely saturated with the Spirit of God in his life. This is amazing, the providence of God coming off our season and going right into this. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he said to them, rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because We've done a good deed for a crippled man. Is this why you are throwing us into prison? Do you, it's, they, it wasn't because they were doing good deeds, it was because they were threatening the religious establishment. Do you want to know how he was healed? Well, let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, by the way, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. And I just like, you just like have to like, like you just have to like put yourself there. This is not like an easy thing to do. I mean, if, you, if, you've ever, if you've ever been at a board meeting that you belong to, it's like hard to say hard things like in a board meeting that you're a part of. He's like standing in front of the religious establish, establishment. There's, there's, there's probably dozens of leaders. These are the key leaders of his city. These are the most powerful people in his city. They have religious power, they have social power, they have civil power. He has already been in jail for an entire night and he's standing before them and he doubles down on what, on what he believes. And y'all are like, well, I would do this, I would do this. You would not do the same. I mean, this is like, <laughs> this, is, this is like, I mean, there's something going on here that has, that's just, just put something into these men and into these women and into these leaders of the early church that is just, it's just astounding. And, and he's standing in, in front of them and, and, and he doubles down and he says this in verse 11, for Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures. He's like, you guys missed it, by the way. He actually is the Messiah, where it says the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. He's like, you remember the Old Testament? There's a verse 
Like what's happening right now, there's a verse. Like that they wrote about this a few hundred years ago and you're doing what they said. Stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And he says, and there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Peter's like, how clear do I need to be? Can I be explicitly clear? By the way, don't you like it when people are, are clear? Don't you like it when people are clear? Did you know that clear is kind? You know, in a relationship, you know, you, you know, in an organization. And, and Peter is like, I'm going to be absolutely clear. The name by which I am doing this and the power by which I am doing this is the name of Jesus. And Jesus is the one who has done this. And I stand in his power. And he's the one that you guys rejected. He's the Messiah. He's actually the son of God. And there is no other name by which salvation comes other than his name. That's the only way that it happens. He, he doubles down. There's just this, this unbelievable level of boldness. In verse 13, it says this. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. They've never experienced anything like this. Like, we thought this guy was going was gonna to shudder. We thought that he was going to, like, submit. We thought that he was going to, like, like, say, I'm sorry. He doesn't say any of that. They're amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary. Somebody say ordinary. Ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. But this is what had happened. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus, which by the way, if you've been with Jesus, that's all the training that you need. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing right there, like who invited him to the council meeting? They're among them. Somebody slipped them in the back. There was nothing the council could say. So they ordered Peter and John out out of the council chamber and conferred among themselves, like, we got to have another board meeting because we don't know exactly what to do here. Verse 16, what should we do with these men, they asked each other. What are we going to do with this? We can't deny that they have performed their miraculous sign, and everybody in Jerusalem knows about it. But to keep them from spreading their propaganda any further... We must warn them not to speak anyone uh, to anyone in, in Jesus' name um, again. They're like, we're going to shut them up. We're going to shut them up. We, we can't deny what's happening. We can't deny the reality of what we're seeing, but there's one thing that we can do. We can try to shut them up, which, by the way, the only thing the enemy has to do to stop us is to shut us up. So they're going to say, we can't do anything else. We tried prison. We tried jail. We tried threatening. We tried all this stuff. And we, we, so so let, let's just try to shut them up. So verse 18. So they called the apostles back in, and they commanded them never again to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. So we, we know how that went, by the way. Verse 19. But Peter and John replied, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? That's the key. They were following the voice of God, not the voice of a man. And we cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. This is what we've seen. This is what we've experienced. We can't deny it. Verse 21, the council then threatened them further, but they finally let them go because they did not know how to punish them without starting a riot. For everyone was praising God. Revival's happening in the city. For this miraculous sign, the healing of a man who had been lame for more than 40 years years. If you were to jump down a few verses and you kind of see what would happen in, in the next section, essentially Peter and John go back and like the, the church has a prayer meeting. It's, it's seriously, it's like, it's like awesome. And then this is what is a part of their prayer in verse 29. It says this, and now, O Lord, they say, hear their threats and give us your servants great boldness. Somebody say boldness, boldness in preaching your word, stretch out your hand 
with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And then after this prayer, the meeting place shook. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. What we're seeing is a spirit-filledness is becoming contagious. And the boldness is becoming contagious as well, because it says at the end, then they preached the word of God with boldness. With boldness. Here's observation number one. Peter and the other disciples are clearly nothing special. These guys weren't trained at like Ivy League schools. These guys fish for a living. You ever, you ever met a fisherman, by the way? Like, these guys are not very impressive. You know, I'm, I'm a fisherman, I can say that. Um, these, these, these guys, like, hang out with fish for a living. I mean, that's like, I mean, that's like their job, you know? I mean, like, um, and Jesus recruits them onto his team. He's like, you guys. I got you. Come follow me. We're going to stop the fishing stuff. We're going to stop the fishing for fish. We're going to start the fishing for men. They're like, I'm sorry. And he brings them. These guys are, these guys are so ordinary. These, there's like nothing special about them. I mean, they're just fishermen, but they are bold. So here's the first observation. God can use anyone, even the ordinary, if they are bold. I like degrees, by the way. I, I like seminary. I like studying. I like theology. I like books. I feel like I read for a living is, is what I do. Um, I love training. I love all of that stuff. But do you know that boldness doesn't come from that stuff? Any, any, anyone, any ordinary person can be bold. And God is not looking for the elite Green Beret Christians who have all the answers of all the questions. He's just looking for a few ordinary people who'll be bold. Who'll be bold. And, and he'll actually believe what he says and do what he calls them to do. God is always calling ordinary people to live out extraordinary boldness. And I believe this is a season where God is calling our church back to our roots, which is just boldness with the message. Boldness with the gospel. I believe we're getting back to the basics in many ways. Just a handful of ordinary people who are following an extraordinary Jesus. And so can I ask you a question pastorally? Do you believe you can be bold? And then why not? Where's there fear in your life today? Ethan, I mean, Ethan, Ethan if, I'm, if I'm bold, I mean, you know what my family would say? You know what my, you know what my co coworkers would think of me? I don't want to be that neighbor, Pastor Ethan. I just like, kind of wanted to slip in the back today and get a little pick-me-up and then get out of here, okay? That's kind of that's my agenda. Are you bold? Are you bold? Is there, is there a boldness in your life and in your testimony and the way that you, you live. Why or why not? Is, is, there, is there fear? Where is there fear? We all have fear in our life. Where is there fear? Where's the doubts that creep in? Well, well, because of your past, you can't X, Y, or Z. Well, because of what you've done, because of what has been done to you, well, because you didn't do, then you see how we so easily convince ourselves that we aren't able to be bold. 
I, I want to say pretty much, I, I think I feel like almost everybody in the room is more qualified than Peter. You know what I mean? Like this, this guy's just an ordinary fisherman. This, but we discount ourselves, not because Jesus has discounted us or because God has discounted us, but because we have discounted ourselves. And so maybe the biggest voice that you need to overcome today is the voice inside you. And stop believing the lies that we even are telling ourselves of why we can't do what God's called us to do. And so are you, are you bold? And then, and then is, there, is there fear? And where is there fear? And, and, and why or why not? Here's observation number two. It was obvious to the religious leaders that Peter and John had been with Jesus. It was clear that they had been around them. It had been clear that they had been with him, that they were a part of his team of, of followers. And the only thing that made sense of their boldness was simply that they had been with Jesus. And so here's observation number two. True boldness and power only comes from knowing Jesus. It only comes from knowing Jesus. It only, it only comes, I can't send you to a class. I can't send you to a seminar. I can't recommend the best book for you. Boldness comes from you experiencing Jesus on the inside of your life, that you were far from God, that you were a sinner, that you did not deserve anything of God. The only thing that you deserved was hell. But God loved you, that he came for you, that he gave himself for you, and that he offered himself on a cross for you so that you could be forgiven and so that you could be saved. And it's only when that reality actually comes on the inside that it transforms you and actually gives you the ability to be bold with what has happened to you. And these disciples, they are, they're, 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 they're transformed. Like just a few days ago, they're like, they're scared cowards. They're like hiding out. They all bail, except for John. They all bail on Jesus at his most crucial moment. And they're all hiding in a room when Jesus actually resurrects from the dead. The first witnesses are women, not the disciples. They're the one that experienced it for the beginning because these guys are scared to death in a room with the door locked. But something happens in them that transforms them into being um, bold. And boldness had come from them experiencing the resurrected Jesus in their life. And there's no way that this movement should have lasted. There's, there's, like, there's no logic for why the movement of Jesus should have lasted longer than a week. They had no political power, no military might, no economic resources. But Peter and the disciples are transformed from fearful cowards into bold leaders. And the reason that they're transformed is because they experience Jesus for themselves. This is why moralism doesn't work. Moralism doesn't make you bold. It gives you a checklist. It tells that you need to be better. It induces condemnation on your life, but it never makes you bold. It's only experiencing Jesus when Jesus does on the inside that you can be bold. So can I ask you just pastorally, have you ever had a real experience with Jesus in your own life? I'm not talking about your mom. I'm talking about you know, this, but is Jesus real to you? Like on the inside, like is there anything fundamentally different on the inside of your life because of meeting Jesus? Is there, is there anything tangible, experiential that's, that's different about you because you've met Jesus and heard the announcement of his gospel? Or are you just doing church or trying to do the spiritual stuff because that's what other people around you expect you to do? True boldness and power only comes from knowing Jesus. And here's observation number three. Peter doesn't hold back. Peter is given an opportunity, and every single one of us will be given opportunities. Peter, Peter is given an opportunity. It's a tremendous opportunity. It carries significant weight. 
it's, it's, it's a challenging um, opportunity. He's, he's hungry, I assume. He's thirsty, probably. He's been in a jail cell. A Roman jails weren't that accommodating, by the way. Um, he, he is, he's been suffering. He's been under tremendous persecution and accusation and adversity. But when he gets the opportunity to speak, when he's given the mic, he doesn't give a partial version of the gospel. He doesn't water it down. He doesn't weaken it. He doesn't give some kind of half-truth so that he can get away unharmed. Peter actually doubles down on it, and he doesn't water it down at all. And so hear me clearly when I say this. The gospel only works when it is proclaimed in an unaltered, unadulterated state. It doesn't work any other way. It's like, well, Jesus is kind of a savior. Jesus kind of loves you. Like, there's kind of a hell. There's kind of a heaven. There might be this, there might be, you know, that doesn't actually work. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't change because it's actually an altered version of the original. It's an, it's an adulted, uh, adulterated version of the original. It's not the actual true gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is simply the good news that God is reconciling the world to himself and to one another through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And there is no other way to be saved other than Jesus. That's the gospel. And here's, what, here's what's interesting about the gospel and what we find in the scriptures, this, this thing, called, we call it the gospel. And, and here's why. The gospel was actually a military term in the first century. So it would have been used by the king, it would have been used by the military as a way to uh, kind of communicate what was happening on the battlefield. So what would happen is that if you were um, a nation or if you were a group of people, um, you, you would, some would go off to war. There would be a war somewhere and you would send soldiers, you would send the king, you would send commanders, generals, whoever off to the battlefield. And it could be a long ways away. Um, you would send them to the battlefield while the rest of the kingdom remained in place. While the war was happening, it could be weeks, it could be months, it could be happening years. While you were waiting, you didn't know the outcome. You didn't know what was going to happen. Are we going to be victorious and are we going to remain in our kingdom or are we going to lose and then they're coming to invade us and to take over us? You wouldn't know. What would happen is that as soon as um, a commander or a general would have victory on the battlefield, there were these people who were called gospel carriers. They would hop on their horse or their chariot or whatever it was. They would leave as soon as there was victory and they would go all the way back to the kingdom and they would carry the gospel or the announcement on whether or not the king was successful. And we would be, uh, or the people would be li living in, in fear until the message came and they would show up into the city and they would say, I have a declaration. I have announcement to everyone. Our king has been victorious. Or he would say, we lost so you better get ready because they're coming for you now. When the scriptures and the gospel writers uh, or the scripture writers use the word gospel, they're using it in the same way. There's been a battle. There's been a war. And our king on our behalf has gone to fight that battle. And our king Jesus has even gone into the depths of hell to defeat Satan, sin, hell, and the grave. And I'm coming here to tell you today, I'm bringing a gospel announcement to let you know that our king has been victorious. And everything the enemy would hold against you, um, Jesus has now satisfied that. He has actually given himself in your place and you stand victorious between you and God. That's the gospel. 
That's, that's, that's the message. How helpful would it be if the gospel carrier came and said, well, guys, um, I just wanted to let you know that the war was cool, you know, and they, they tried hard and, you know, uh, they did a good job and, you know, and, and then, um, but it was, um, I'm really not sure what happened and I'm not really sure what's going on right now, but you know what? You should be encouraged. Be like, that is not helpful. What, do you, what, did you, what are we paying you to do? We need to know, are we victorious or are we not? So it is with the gospel message. The gospel only works when it is proclaimed in an unaltered, unadulterated state. When someone knows that you are either saved or not saved by Jesus Christ alone. That's the only way that this thing works. It's kind of like for those of you that have been, had a loved one or had someone that has been in the hospital someone that has needed significant surgery or an operation, something that could save their life or take their life depending on the outcome of the surgery. Those of you who've been there know what it's like, don't you? Sitting in a waiting room, anxious, knowing what's going to happen, and then the doctor walks in. The doctor says, I came to tell you today that I don't want you to know that the operation was successful. Your loved one is fine. That's, 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 the, that's, the same, that's the same idea. The message of the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel is like that. And the church cannot evolve uh, from the, the actual message that made it powerful. All right, the gospel of Jesus is the only thing that can save. So it would be a swing and a miss for us to think that, well, if we just have nice programs, that will take the place of the gospel. Well, if we just have a good preacher, that will take the place of the gospel. Well, if we, just, if we just have good ministries, then we don't really need to make that big of a deal of the gospel. No, swing and a miss. We have to double down on the gospel, and it has to be very clear that nothing else matters except for the gospel. And if we miss on it, we're going to miss on everything else. And so we have to double down. We, we, have, to be, we have to be bold. We, we have to recognize that, um, that this only works if we are... Um, bold with the gospel. So let me, let me issue two quick dangers. Two quick dangers. The first is a danger of a domesticated Christianity. A domesticated Christianity. This is kind of like, well, Jesus, you, you remember Mr. Rogers back in the way, or back in the day, by the way, any, anybody, Mr. Rogers? Um, I almost was going to play the song, but I'm like, there's like, I think there's like copyright issues or something. I don't know. But I was like, I was, I was going to play the song, you know, Mr. Mr. Rogers neighborhood. Um, we, we, we got to avoid like creating some kind of Mr. Rogers Jesus that, you know, he's just like, he's just going to be nice to everybody. And like, you know, we're just going to be, everybody's going to be fine. Everyone is not going to be fine. People are literally going to hell. People are literally going to hell if they don't give their life to Jesus and trust him for what he has, has done for them some kind of domesticated Christianity that's kind of fun and that's kind of cool and let's just create kind of like some kind of shopping mall for Jesus where everybody has a lot of fun, that will not work. Domestic, domesticated Christianity will not work. That's one of the dangers. One of the other dangers is an emasculated gospel. Just some kind of halfway, some kind of partial, some kind of like helpful idea, gospel of Jesus or this or that. No, Jesus is the only way. And Christianity, um, 
is not just some kind of philosophy or some kind of worldview that is positive because it promotes human rights or it promotes human flourishing. No, we cannot rip the gospel of its actual power, which is Jesus saves people. He saves people. And it only happens through faith in him. And so here's what's going to happen. We're going to be bold. We're going to be a church that's bold, and we're going to be bold in a number of different ways, but we're going to be bold with, with, with the gospel. And so, like, if you're not down with that, like, I'm really sorry, you know? I'm just really sorry, but we're just going to be bold, okay? We're going to be bold. We're going to look at the scriptures. We're going to look at the text. We're going to see what God commands of us. And even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's not easy, whatever, we're just going to be bold, Okay? We're going to be bold with, with what Jesus calls us to do, and we're going to trust and believe that that's actually what makes the movement go forward. Every other um, Christian denomination and group that actually weakens the gospel, it dies. That's what happens. It's only when those people of faith who actually double down and, and believe in the truth of the gospel that the movement actually moves forward. And so we're going to double down, and we're, and we're, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna be bold. We're, we're not going to be arrogant. We're not going to be mean. We're not going to be harsh. We're going to be the most loving people in the world because we actually believe in what the gospel commands of us and what it does in us as well. And we're going to be bold, and we're going we're gonna to do what Jesus calls us to do, and we're going to obey what Jesus calls us to obey. Carl F. Henry would famously say, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. And we, we, we need a little bit of a wake up. We, we, need, we need a little bit of a shock to the system today. People's lives are on the line. And if the gospel doesn't get there in time, they're gonna wreck their life. They're, they're gonna destroy their life. They're gonna miss the peace. They're gonna miss the abundant life. And we're gonna miss what God calls us to in his Kingdom. The gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. Now, let me, let me issue two quick kind of closing stories to kind of, kind of show how this can play out. A few years ago, I was in um, a coffee shop down on Castle Street. When my wife and I, when we first moved to the city, we planted the, uh, the Bridge Church back in 2014. We lived on 3rd Third, um, Street, uh, just about a block away from, at the time, which was my favorite place in the entire city, which was Luna Cafe right on Castle Street. It's, if you've ever been in there, the old one, not the new one. The old one, it's, it's a tiny little, it's a tiny little coffee shop. It's got the exposed brick walls and it's, you know, it's, it's a little funky and, but it's tight, you know, there's like three or four tables and like everything that everyone says in the coffee shop, everyone, everyone can hear. You ever been in one of those coffee shops before? And, um, literally, literally, um, being a pastor is always a unique experience for me every day. I'm standing, I'm standing in line and, um, I'm getting, I'm a couple back and I'm getting ready to, to place my order. And this guy starts up a conversation behind me and somehow he figures out that I'm a pastor. I usually try to avoid that only just because it makes things weird, you know, like, and, and so, and I usually try to backdoor people, you know, but this time he's like, somehow he figured out I'm a pastor. And then he just like went off on like how like much he loves God. And I was like, this is, this is uh, kind of amazing and kind of loud. And, um, and then, and then he goes on to say, and it is crazy to me. I mean, it's like, it's crazy to me that people don't believe in Jesus. How, how could they not believe in Jesus when he is the only way? It's absolutely absurd. At this point, everyone in the coffee shop is looking at us. And I kind of like, I did not start this conversation. This is not my idea. 
I'm not going to lie. A woman literally stands up in the corner and a shouting match starts between them two about, I cannot believe that you would say something so arrogant. And I'm, and I'm, I'm like, um, I, I need an eject button right now. Like, how do I get out of this? And I'm like, that's not helpful. I appreciate the boldness, but that's just not quite helpful. What about a boldness that just lays down your life? What, what, what about a boldness that's willing to go to jail? What, what about a boldness that's willing to stand in front of a hard situation and actually take it? That kind of boldness. It reminds me of this other story that I think is more relatable, more powerful. In 2006, there was an unfortunate, tragic shooting in an Amish community in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. A gunman, if you remembered, entered the small schoolhouse in kind of a remote area of this village or this community. He enters it. He sends everyone out of the schoolhouse except for 10 young girls. He, he, he would line them up in front of the chalkboard, and one at a time, he would shoot every single one of them in the head, and then he would shoot himself. A few of the girls would actually survive the tragic event, which is how we know the details of the story. But here's what's crazy about this unbelievable, tragic situation. A few of the parents of these children who were murdered, a few days later, they went to the home of the deceased shooter. They pulled up to the front door and they knocked on the door and his wife came to the door and she was immediately startled. And they said to her at the front door, we're not here for revenge. We've lost a family member and we know you have lost one as well. We've forgiven him what has happened and we want to grieve together. The thing about this Amish community is odd kind of as they were with some of their practices actually believed in the gospel of Jesus, which means when we look at our message and our story, what do we see? we see a man giving himself for others, sacrificing himself for others, which then gives us the ability to even lay down our own lives for the sake of others. Would we have that kind of boldness? A boldness that is so sure of the gospel, so real of it, that it would lead us and cause us to even take steps like that. Church, we are bold. We are bold. And we're going to make a difference in our lives, in our families, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our city, and in our world, because being bold with the message of Jesus. Let's pray. God, today, I just ask that you would help us in Jesus' name to have the same kind of boldness that, that Peter would have, that John would have, that even these Amish believers would have, and that you would allow us to be transformed and changed so that we could live out this same kind of boldness in our own lives.